as we uh, send this, close this part down for uh, summer, I, I thought it would be interesting. Years ago, I read a book uh, with a really interesting premise. It was called Who Switched the Price Tags? And, and the, the idea was this. When, uh, Tony Campala was saying, when I was a kid, we used to go as a team into a store. And we would see an item that was $2 and an item that was $5. And we wanted the $5 item, but we wanted it for $2. So we would switch the price tags. And, and Campola was saying, interestingly enough, somebody's come along in life and done the same thing. They've taken the things that were very valuable and made them cheap. And the things that are very cheap made them valuable. Interesting premise. In the midst of this, I have no idea, a typical 250-page book, there's one paragraph where Campolo quotes a non-scientific but fascinating survey that, that I want to talk to you about for whatever we got today, 40, 45 minutes. And the survey simply just did this. It, it questioned 50 people who were at least 95 years of age. Okay, 50 people at least 95 years of age and they ask them one question. If you had your life to live over again, what would you do differently? Uh, I don't know a thing about the background of these people, knowing Campolo and knowing just, just the way these things happen. I doubt that it has a religious component to it or an economic demographic. I think it's just 50 people. Plus, you're looking for 95-year-olds. You can't be too picky anyway. So you've got to get 50 of these people. Okay? So you get 50 of these people. And, and to me, it's the kind of stuff I like, because I, at that point, I, I believe, uh, and, I, and I say this as, as I uh, get a little older myself, I just believe that there are things that, that even experience can't teach you, just time does. There's just wisdom, I think, that comes with that, if at all you're watching and discerning. So uh, they ask these people, what would you do if you live your life over again? And they found three dominant answers, variations of it. They said, if I had my life to live over again, here's the three things I do. Number one, I would reflect more. Number two, I would risk more. And number three, I would do things that would live after I'm dead. Again, it's uh, fascinating to me to, to, to understand probably no demographic, no theological bend here. It's just simply saying, if I was going to do this over again, these are the things that I would spend time on. I would reflect more. Uh, by that we mean more than, more than just a, a casual thought. We would substitute for that not an emphasis on knowledge per se, but an emphasis on thinking. Okay? Favorite word from the Scripture? Ponder. Well, we don't use that word anymore. You have a whole thing now that says, oh, in the, in the next wave, in the next future, the commodity that people want are knowledge. Knowledge is power. I don't think so, and I'll tell you my own reason. Just my little time on the Internet. Uh, there's just so much out there, and there's so much knowledge, that it's almost equalized knowledge. Okay? Here's the issue. Here's the, here's the commodity for the future. Discernment. What's truly worth knowing? What truly do these things mean? I have the ability to, to listen and to, and to try to, try to just understand what's happening. To stop and to think. The Wall Street Journal, in an article several years ago, said every business executive should be spending 20% of his or her day thinking. 
that's, that's time where nothing's going on, just thinking. My favorite part, and I'll be as frank as I can about vacation, I've, it is a great time because we always go to the, over to the Northern California, up north of San Francisco, and, and hang out on the beach, and that's terrific. I go home and play golf. I love that. I get to do that for four, five, six days. But my favorite part of the whole vacation is just not having anything to do but to think. And it's uh, everybody who works uh, with me, it's their worst nightmare because I come back with yellow pads with all these thoughts that seem so profound and significant on a beach and seem stupid when you put them in the, <laughs> in the laboratory here and you make them work. But it's just all that time to think. It's just that premium on the idea of stopping and thinking. Uh, another word that we might use, if we could define it, would be meditate. The problem with the word meditate is, in our culture, it conjures up a picture of somebody kind of sitting, and the idea of meditating is to empty their mind. You're kind of, nerny, 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 nerny. Kind of take their mind and empty it out, when in fact what the Scripture says, and what meditate really means, is to fill your mind with a singular thought, and to think it over and over and over again. Not to empty it, but to fill it. And to understand it. Now, what should we be approaching? Well, here you go. What is it? Again. It starts with this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Look at this. What is this guy doing here? This is not good. Uh, from Philippians 3. This is from the Amplified. So you get the whole picture here of what the Scripture says. For my determined purpose is that I may know Him, that's God, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving, recognizing, and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly. So that when we talk about thinking, what we're really talking about in our sense, in an ultimate sense, and then everything else flowing out of it, is thinking and meditating and understanding of God and who He is. Of taking the Scripture and understanding the person of God. What is God like? What does He mean? How does He speak? What are His characteristics? What are His attributes? That's what I need to understand. I'm convinced more and more that the key to spiritual growth is not going to another seminar. It's not plugging in another tape. All those things are helpful. It, it's not having another experience. It's not finding ten ways to... Th the way that you will absolutely skyrocket your spiritual growth is to understand God and study Him and who He is. His attributes. His characteristics. Now, does that have practical ramifications? You bet it does. R.C. Sproul offers this comment. Uh, God has made us with harmony of heart and harmony of head, of thought and of action. So the more we know Him, the more we are able to love Him. The more we love Him, the more we seek to know Him. To be central in our hearts, He must be foremost in our minds. And then some terms that might be familiar to some of you. Sproul says, religious thought is a prerequisite to religious affection and obedient action. Here's what R.C. saying. You don't really love someone with real love until you know them. And the more you know them, the more you love them. Susan and I just celebrated 20 years together. And we just know, we just, just it's kind of almost in a sense scary, we just started to really know and to understand each other. 
and to begin to, to think and to begin to anticipate this. Yesterday morning, uh, yesterday morning's my early, that's when I get up. Wednesday is always my earliest morning. But I've done this lesson before, so I didn't have to get up particularly early. So I got up at 5 o'clock, and I went out, and, and there was no coffee made. And this is a big deal, okay? So I'm thinking, well, this is a snafu in our, in our relationship. This is, not, this is not, well, this was supposed to be. But I didn't, I got out of there, I did my thing, I left, and obviously Susan's, you know, resting, and, and so I called and I was ready to say, you know, I, I don't know if you noticed it, but there was no coffee this morning. And, and so I, I called and she said hello, and I said, hey, and she said, Tom, I need to apologize for you, there was no coffee for you today. And she knew how significant that was, and, and it, it, this sounds really stupid, but that kind of was a real turn on to me. Of course, just about breathing, just about anything is, but, 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 but that really was because it just said it really said this is how much she cares about me to understand that in my life this was really a significant little thing. Is it a giant thing? Yeah. Is it something I was going to get upset about? No. But it, she understood, and I thought, isn't that funny? The more you start to know somebody with those kind of things, now you can really begin to love them. Well, in God, it's the same situation. It's to know Him. It's to understand who He is. The more I understand Him, the more I love Him. Uh, I have not seen... I'm debating whether I'll see the, the uh, saving private uh, Sergeant Ryan or whatever he is, Private Ryan, whatever. Because I don't know if I can handle I'm not a graphic violence kind of a guy. And the, the Zorro took me to the limit with a... <laughs> Except to find out that I do look like Antonio. Very, 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 very rewarding for me. Several people have pointed out, well, once that mask is in place, there is a resemblance. Uh, but, 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 but I understand the basic premise of the show is that these guys go in to, to save... Is it Private Ryan? Private, isn't it? Okay. Going to save Private Ryan because his three brothers are killed, da-da-da-da-da-da. And there is a moment of gratitude and a moment of understanding what was, you know what? And, and that's got to be unbelievable. Here are these guys go, but let me tell you something. That's nothing compared to the fact that God sent his only begotten son to save you from your sin. You know, think about some great act of salvation. And I'm not putting down Private Ryan. I'm saying that's a great act of love and we tip our hats and we'll make movies about that. That's really significant, but that pales in comparison. That God sending His perfect Son to die on the cross for sinful people. Well, the more I understand and know that, the more I love Him. So that in my life, as they say, reflect more, I'm saying, as you reflect more, as you approach life and prepare to live it, all of a sudden, I now know things. I understand life. I'm reflecting so my life is not reactive, it's proactive. I'm going to take just a second, and this is a bit of a... Uh, Detour. Uh, many of you familiar with the uh, book uh, Halftime, Bob Buford's book. Uh, premise kind of is is God's done something special in our generation alone, and that is this. About 1900, life expectancy was plus or minus 50. Now it's plus or minus 75, heading toward 100. What God has done to our generation, as He's done to no generation before, is give us two adulthoods. He's given us an adulthood and then a second one. And that most people, men in particular, and here's the age. It's interesting, he picks an age. And he says at age 43, guys are understanding that there's this 
second deal. There's this second chance. And his premise is the second half has in it all sorts of components that make it better than the first half. Here's his list. Number one, you're less uh, diverted by non-essentials. Your, your mind is a, a little more focused. Uh, you understand what the central issues are, and those peripheral matters just kind of drift away. You reach a point, I don't know where, you reach a point where you start to go, I, I don't need to really work it like this. I don't really need to worry about what everybody said. It really doesn't matter. Okay? All of a sudden, now I can focus on my agenda. For the first half, most of us don't even understand what our agenda is. We don't even understand why we're here, what we're doing. We're just doing whatever everybody tells us to do. Now we can focus on this, and I begin to gain control of my life. It's not that there aren't things beyond my control, but it's now that I have a focus, and now that I'm, uh, I, I, I've gotten rid of these non-essentials, my life takes on more of a purpose that allows me to, to gain control again. I have more resources. Now, we tend to think, in money, but money is part of it. I mean, there's no question. Susan and I have more money now. We are a long way from road trip from rich. But Susan and I have more money now than we did when we were 23. They're just things that you can do now, and, and money is part of it. But you have more intellectual resources. You have more human resources. You have more relationships. You have more ways to network. Uh, you have more problems. You have more people that you can call. You have, just have more life experience. You just, you just have more resources that make the second half potentially way better than the first half. It's an opportunity for really new beginnings. It's an opportunity to establish a fresh start. It's, it's an opportunity to tackle uh, new things in new ways. Here you go. Here's the last two. You learn how to play through pain. There are uh, messages that I get on my voicemail now that are marked urgent that 15 years ago would have thrown me in a dither for a week and now I just go, those are road bumps. Those are just boom. Uh, this is my, I think I've told this story here. I, I got this, I'm picking up my voicemail the other day and I never save messages. I've got one that I save and it's uh, from one of my daughters. But, but I, I just erase them because I presume... If i got to save them, I know I'm not going to call them back. And if i got to hear the save, it'll only make me feel guilty, so I'll just put them out in cyberspace and get it over with. So I picked up my messages, and it says, you have three new messages. And normally, I'm so impatient, normally I'm just hitting them there. But for whatever reason, I was bent away what if I couldn't get back, and it said, and one save message. Wow, that's weird. I skip, 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 get to the save message. Uh, uh, Tom, you need to give me a call. Uh, I have a major problem in my life. My life has fallen apart. I've got major disasters. I cannot begin to lay them out for you. Uh, my home number is this. My business number is this. My mobile number is this. My fax number is this. My pages number is this. My shoe size is seven and a half. Whatever you need, you need to get a hold of me. And I mean, this thing goes on and on and on and on and on like this. And then I get the date, and the thing came in two weeks ago. And I said, oh, brother. So... My instinct is to avoid it, but I know that's not right. So I call because if it's that big a problem, you're still. In. So I call and I get this person on the phone and and I say, hey, this time I return your call. I really apologize for this. What clearly happened is I was out and in a hurry. I hit save thinking I'd come back to it. I just absolutely lost it. I just got it. I just got this message and you know I, I just want to respond to you. And the person in the other end had a long pause, and then the person said. I don't remember why I called. Now, 
Maybe a little overreaction. But I find that to be pretty helpful. I find a lot of these real critical calls, these real critical calls, that if you give them two or three days, by the time you get to them, they're all solved. And, and something about life just kind of tells you, you just kind of learn to get through it. That, that, that none of these blows are fatal. And most of them are ultimately advantageous because they teach us. The other thing about the, the, the first half of life is you learn about grace. You learn about God's grace, and I think you learn about grace to each other. And, and being gracious and dealing one, with one another. So these 95-year-old people said, if I had my life to live over again, the first thing I would do would be to reflect more. That is, to ponder, or to meditate, to be proactive in life. Here's the second thing. They said, the second thing I would do is risk more. Now, you've got to understand, I'm working off a paragraph, so I have to read a lot of things into it. But it strikes me that they did not go back and reflect on times of exhilarating successes. <coughs> But they reflected on times, not even a failure, they reflected on times where they didn't even try. There are not many things that I am afraid of. I mean, there's a lot of physical things. I mean, if I'm going to beat you up, that would have, that kills me. You know, that would be bad, especially when it's a girl. They always, that just, that kills me, okay? But that, that, that I know goes away. But there's one fear, and I don't even know that that's the right word, that I have. And that is that I would get to the end of my life and say, I wish I would have. If I only would have. I could have. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt had a quote that's become very famous. It's become famous because, oh, a variety of reasons. One, Roosevelt used it, but the second one is Richard Nixon embraced this quote. This became a very important quote for Nixon. And it's just got Nixon dripping all over it as you read it. You can almost hear him say it. It's not the critic who counts. You can stop right there for him. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best, in the end, knows the triumphs of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Now, if you look at that, that's, especially the last paragraph, the last phrase, it throws you, I think, back into the book of Revelations, where Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you make me want to throw up. What Roosevelt is saying here is that the issue is to be in the game. That anybody can sit on the side and criticize. Is there a place for the critic? I guess. Is there a place to point these things out? You bet. But it, but it always strikes me as odd that, that, the, that the movie critic has never made a movie. You know, that, the, that the guy who reviews the concert uh, uh, can't play a chord. Yeah, that always strikes me as odd. And I understand it, and I play the role, and we all fall into that, and I understand that's part of human nature to want to comment and to understand, but I'll tell you this, the person for whom the credit ought to be set aside is at least the person who's out there. We're in a car the other day with a guy, and there's this gal walking, and she is a big, fat woman. She's huge. 
She is gigantic. And the guy in the car with me said, isn't that pathetic? Look at her out there. And I thought, you know what I thought? I thought, how about this? She, she put on a pair of shorts and she's got on some shoes. I'm going to give her... She's doing a heck of a lot more than I am. See, I... I, I and this is... And I've had to evolve to this position because I don't naturally go there. But I... But, but, I give great points now for those that are out there doing something. I'm more than willing to criticize, but almost only now by invitation. And and even then, in a a critical spirit of love, I get more and more guys who give me tapes and say, we listen to them and criticize them. And I just can't do it. I love to listen to them and say, you know what? I think you did a great job here. This is good and this is good and this is good. And the stuff that stinks, you know it stinks. You don't need me to tell you it stinks. Yeah? Oh, oh, what I want. I want somebody who's just willing to get in the arena and to give it a whirl. C.S. Lewis uh, offers this observation on our generation. He says this, Our age is marked by moderate vice and moderate virtue. Here's what he's saying. We don't even sin very well. We don't do good things with much vigor, and we don't even sin with any pizzazz. We're just into averageness. And we've bred that in a way, in the sense that we've so been concerned about equality, that we've defined equality as equal achievement, equal status, equal this. Okay? We aren't equal. Michael Jordan and I are not equal. Tiger Woods and I are not equal. Bill Gates and I are not equal. They are all my superiors in the fields that you would associate with them. We aren't even close. And when you start saying we're going to have everybody equal, what you're saying is what we're, our goal is mediocrity. Average becomes the goal. And I just don't think that's where you want to be. I think if you look at the culture, you look at it, and we have and truly, we, we, look at, we say, we look at the kids and we get on them because they'll go, whatever. And they're like a little soda pop where the cap's off and all the fizz is gone. We've looked at this where we say whatever. I, and and I, don't, I don't mean this in a political sense at all, because I still, uh, to me, I mean, I, 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 I'm not shocked by the last three days. I haven't met a person yet that goes, wow, I never dreamt that was possible. I haven't met a person yet on that, okay? But what, what, what makes me sad is to have to listen to people somehow justify, and Richards, who's hard to stand anyway, was on the TV the other night with that voice going, well, you got to at least say the man's got the economy going, and that's all that matters. He told, he didn't lie. He told the untruth. What the heck is that? You've got to be a lawyer to come up with that. An untruth. Okay? And it's, an, it's a lie. Okay? He didn't do anything but lie under oath. Now, I got my kid... And now I got my kid who accidentally hits a ball through a window, and I said, "Did you do it?" And he goes, "No." And I want to punish this kid because he accidentally broke a window. Now I got a guy who's had apparently sexual relationships with at least now we've established four or five gals, and and it's okay. I don't get that, and I don't have a problem with him per se. I'm saying when you go, well, that's all right. It's an untruth, and you say lying is an untruth. You've just said, okay, we aspire to nothing in the area of morals or ethics. Okay? If Jimmy Swaggart does it, it's a disaster. If a guy who, who's nominated for the Joint Chiefs of Staff does it, years ago, in the midst of a, in the midst 
of a separation from his wife, he's unqualified for the job, but if the commander-in-chief does it in the Oval Office, it's okay? I don't know. Something breaks down for me there. I'm not the brightest guy in the world, but there's a gap there, and it makes it very difficult. Here's how you know what the problem. Try to explain it to a 12-year-old. And when you try to explain it to a 12-year-old, they give you the Rudy look. That's my dog. They give you the, oh, what are you saying there? Because it doesn't go. It doesn't go. I don't think so. And I don't even mean that in a political way. I'm just saying, there's where you are. When you aspire to that, you've, you've got a problem. Okay? And we have to risk more, and risk more is in action, but it's also risk more of thought. We've got to be willing to say, you know what? We're going to call people to a higher standard. But I'll give you a little in- example. The church I go to, we are telling people that if they have children, birth through sixth grade, they need to work at least a quarter of the year in the CE department somewhere taking care of kids. Talking to a guy from another church, he said, you know what? He said, we just had a huge argument among our board of directors because we were going to send a letter saying to the parents, could you possibly work perhaps two weeks if it wasn't a big hassle somewhere in the year? What are you calling me to there? See, I think people, I think, call, I think people are anxiously waiting for a call to a higher level. I think everybody understands, I don't want to look look it. If I'm just doing what I feel, then there's no difference between me and a dog. And I think everybody instinctively understands that. I think you need to be willing to risk more, not just in terms of action, but in terms of thought, in terms of relationship, in terms of command, in terms of dealing with people. You need to be willing to sit it out. And to, to sit out, by that I mean to sit out in front of you these standards and to aspire to them. I will tell you, let me check time here. The thing that will kill that, uh, staying on action, the reason I'm convinced most people never give it a try is because they fail. That's why, those of you that play golf, why is it, this is, this is, this is fascinating, okay? Why is a three-foot putt harder than a ten-foot putt? Ten-foot putt, three times plus longer. A three-foot putt is infinitely harder than a ten-foot putt. And the reason is simple. You know you ought to make the three-foot putt. You're standing over the three. I had one yesterday on the 18th hole that was just, it was the worst putt perhaps I've ever hit in my, I don't even know what that was. And it's not three feet. It's not, it's uphill. It doesn't break. It's a nothing putt. And I stood over it. I, I must have just choked my guts out and not even realized it. I never even hit the hole. Why is a three-foot putt tougher than a ten-foot putt? The reason is you know you ought to make it. So now you're thinking, well, what are these other guys going to say if I miss this three-foot putt? I can help you out. They're very happy. They're very happy if you miss the three-foot putt. I, I, I didn't see one guy go, doggone, that's a bad break. You missed that putt. Okay. And all of a sudden, it's a mini view of what happens in fear. Your pride kicks in. See, that's what's happened. Now you're afraid to do anything because what's it going to look like if I fail? Hey. First of all, very few people are watching, and the people who are watching are going to be happy you failed. Okay? You're not going to be any sort of but it's your pride. What's it going to look like if I try it and I don't do it? That's why, to me, the most interesting athletic uh, event in the whole world, to me, is the high jump and the pole vault. Because they're the only two events that end with failure. Okay? You, end, you fail. When's the high jump over? When's the pole vault over? When you fail. That's when it's over. And yet there's something about that. I, I think somehow we've got to learn to embrace failure as part of life and turn it on for growing and not really be particularly concerned about what other people think. Here's the last thing. 
that they said. They said that they would do things that would last beyond their lifetime. How do you do that? I'm convinced the answer lies in this and other passages that communicate the same truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, 17, and 18. Okay? Paul writing, Therefore, we don't lose heart, we don't give up, though the outer man is decaying, beginning to sag and bag and drag, okay? the outer man's falling apart, our inner man is being renewed day by day. Okay? How's that happening? Well, he said, I'm going to tell you in a second, but before I get there, I want you to understand that momentary light affliction, that is life. Momentary light affliction is producing for us. Who's the us? Every human? No, just the Christian. That's what he's talking about. There's no eternal weight of glory being built up for the atheist or the pagan or the agnostic or the orthodox Buddhist. No, the us. Momentary light affliction is producing for the Christian an eternal weight of glory beyond anything we can think about. What's the key, Paul? Nail it down for me. What is the thing that's going to keep me on track? How in the midst of this world am I not going to begin to become overwhelmed by the affliction or get sidetracked by the fact that my body's falling apart or start to see life wear and tear and be attracted to... How do I stay focused? He said, here's the answer. We don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that aren't seen. The things that we see are temporal. The things we don't see are eternal. Here you go. And these people instinctively went to it. Isn't that interesting? They said, I would have liked to have done something that would have lasted beyond my lifetime. Well, the only thing that lasts beyond your life is your soul and the souls of the people around you. That's it. Everything else is passing away. So if you say, here's what I want to do. I really want to make a difference. And then you're spending 16, 12 hours a day, 50, 60 hours a week on stuff that you can see, which is temporal. But your heart says, I want to work on the stuff that's eternal. And your action isn't there. That's why you're frustrated. So Jesus tells the parable and he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Here's what's interesting to me in this. He's not talking about a loser, he's talking about a winner. He said, what's a profit if a guy gets everything he wants? Yesterday, new numbers, Bill Gates, net worth, as of now, $51 billion. That's a lot. Okay? Seems like it anyway. $51 billion. So you can go ahead. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but he loses his soul. I'm telling you, as you're struggling, you're trying to figure out how can I stay motivated? How can I stay on the eternity? How can I stay on the important things? How can I get, how can I get it or not get it? Here's the deal. I look at the things which I don't see which are eternal and I dump my time in there and I understand the rest of the stuff is passing away. I understand that that brand new car that's now parked out there right now and you got me hacked off taking up two spaces because you don't want to get it dinged is one day and even if it doesn't, you're going to get sick of it and blow it off for the next thing anyway. Okay? That carpet that you've got in and you're just going nuts because it's been scotch guarded and everything else and in comes some big old guy and he dumps grape juice on it. It's happening. It's going to happen. And you know what? You even say it's not important. Some of you go to church. This is my favorite time. I can't sing this song. But I watch you sing it, and you sing it out loud. I don't get it. You sing, I surrender all. I don't buy that for a second. I watch you guys sing that song. I'm going, I'm going to sit this one out. I can't sing that song. I haven't surrendered it all. I'm hanging on to a lot of stuff here. Okay? I'm hanging on to a lot of these things. When you say, I surrender all, here's what you're saying. 
I'm going to take all these things that are seen, which are temporal, and I'm going to give them away for the things that aren't seen, which are eternal, because that's where I want to focus. Very helpful in this process to me is to ask these questions. Not in a way that is defeating, but in a way that I think produces a thought process. Ask yourself some of these. What do you want to be remembered for? Well, when they gather around at the memorial service and they say, okay, we're going to open up the microphone, what is it you want them to say? What would be the thing, what would be the thing you'd like to be noted for? Good businessman? Nothing wrong with that. I, I, I watched this at the Goldwater funeral. Goldwater funeral, very, very, very sad occasion. Uh, uh, sad, sad simply because you realize that this guy, this, this guy, probably not in heaven, I'm thinking. Okay? And they told great stories and army stories and we laughed and we cried. But you know what? You can't, yeah, to me, when it was over, and I love, I love, I'm a funeral guy. I mean, I love watching when I'm over, I'm going, this is very empty here. This is very hollow here. Is that what you want to be noted for? Swashbuckling aviator? Senator? Yes, I don't know. What do you want to be noted for? There's a second thing. What's the lifestyle that you're willing to accept? Now, for some of you, not an issue. Okay? God's got you on a budget. You're making twelve grand a year. No problem. Okay? Some of you are making so much money that that isn't even really an issue either because you're out, you, you just, it isn't going to matter. vast majority of you, this is the number one, you can write, the, you can book this Dano. This is the number one obstacle, I think, to ministry in the church. Exorbitant lifestyle. It just is. If you're going to buy that 3,500 square foot house, you got to furnish that dog and heat that dog and cool that dog and pay tax on that dog and you got to bust your pick to make extra money for that. If you're going to allow the people at, at, at your mortgage banker and your credit card company to establish your lifestyle, in other words, if it just says approved and therefore you can afford it, if you allow that to happen, you're doomed. You're doomed spiritually. There is no way you will develop a meaningful ministry if you've got your lifestyle stretched to the hill. That's why we don't even, we don't even ask this question. right. Well, we, the question that I get all the time is, how much money should I give to God? And the que- that's the wrong question. The question is, how much of God's money should you keep? That's the question. Okay, It's all His. What am I going to do with it? And when you live at a time, one of the great encouraging things that I see is I see this huge move to simplify life. When it's just more house and more car, I don't care who you are or how much money you make, you are doomed to frustration. And you can take your ministry and flush it. It just isn't going to happen. And what little ministry happens will happen in spite of that. And all that ought to do is frustrate you more because it's just giving you a peek at what it could have been. What do I want to be doing in ten years? Where do I want to be? This is, this is something that's happened that's really, I call it cute, because it just is cute. It just makes me laugh. In the last month, I've had three guys who I've met, come, they came out to my office, and they sat down, and they said, I want to do what you're doing. How, how do I get there? I just find that so funny, because I don't have a clue. Okay, But at least what I applaud is the thought, because the thought goes like this. I want to do what you're doing, so I'm going to go to people who are where I want to be in ten years, 
And I'm asking him, what did you do? You know, what, what, what are the steps? Where do you want to be in ten years? Here you go. How well am I applying what I already know? This is my argument against Sunday night church and adult Sunday school. I do not see the point of going to one lesson and then another and then another when you haven't even applied a fraction of the first one. For most of people, now this is, understand, we're talking generalities here. In the world, major thing out there is spiritual malnutrition. Okay? But within most of especially if you're going to decent churches, and many of you are going to good churches, big problem, spiritual malnutrition, uh-uh, spiritual constipation. That's the problem. Okay? That's what I got. Here's a revolutionary idea. Why don't you try doing something? Not learning. Let's go a whole weekend not learn. Let's go a weekend do. What are you doing with what you know? And the interesting thing is, the more you do with what you know, the more you'll learn. You've got to be applying what you know. How about this? I, I asked this, <laughs> ask this question in my small group, and they hate, this is stupid, this is dumb. This is, this, Tom, that's dumb. And they just blew it off. I think it's a great question. If your life was perfect, what would it look like? And the point there is to say, okay, if I could orchestrate things perfectly, how would they be? Because once I see that, I can start to drive toward them, and now I can also begin to define what's essential and non-essential. That's what all these, that's what all these questions do. All these questions force you to define what's important and what's not. Then all you've got to do is now lay your life on this grid and you'll go, holy smokes, look at all this time and money I'm wasting over here in this area that I said wasn't even important. Here's the area I said is important and I'm not even getting there. So you ask the question, what am I willing to give my life to? Not what are you willing to die for. I don't think that's that hard. I could be kind of myself. I don't know. If somebody came in here right now and they said, okay, here's the deal. They held me right up front. They said, Tom, here's what we're going to do. We're going to blow your brains out if you don't deny Christ. I honestly, I could be wrong, but I honestly think I'd say, you know, do me one favor. Just really make sure you splatter them all over because I don't want to be flopping around very long. And I think I would say, just blow them out. You know, they said, well, we're going to peel your skin off. And I go, well, oh, that's... And I had to think about that one. But if they just said, we're going to just kill you. We're going to kill you. I don't think that'd be hard. The challenge, I don't think, is to die for Christ in some martyr situation for us. The challenge is to live for Him in the midst of a very fallen world that is filled with distractions. In a world that as it sucks you in and as you start to succeed in it, says you're doing better and better and better, and here you go. As you succeed in the world, here's where you want to be with Christ. As you succeed in the world, you inevitably get pulled further and further away from Him. So that's it. I love this. I love these people. They're 95. They couldn't care less. And in a moment of honesty, in a sense of anonymity, they said, if I could do it over again, what would I do differently? They said, I would reflect more, I would risk more, and I would do things that had eternal consequences. And I would suggest, just for sake of thought, that you might ponder those three things and begin to act on them. We'll come back in September and we will look at, for a week or two, what I learned on my summer vacation. I look forward to uh, seeing you in September. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done in our life, for what you're teaching us. And we pray that uh, you would work in our life in a real way. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you in September. Hey, thanks.